Thank you for joining us this afternoon for Catechesis. Today we have Father John Reeves joining us. He's going to look at and share a reflection for the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, which is today, February 2nd. You may have remember Father John from his last talk about the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. And also he presented in December about what Advent is in the Eastern Church. Hello, Father John. Welcome to Radio Maria England. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. I'm happy to be once again with you all. And today I'm very happy that we can have a look at this magnificent feast that we are celebrating today, the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. This feast, by the way, has many names, and it's interesting that it's known as, in some places, as Candle Mass. And this is because of the connection to, <laughs> connection to of course, uh, the blessing of candles on this day. And, for example, in the German-speaking countries, it's often called um, Maria Lichtmesse, which means the Candle Mass of Mary, so to say. So this feast, which is... In the older Christian tradition, the final, the leave-taking of the Christmas mystery. Now in the contemporary uh, usage in the Roman Catholic Church, the end of Christmas is the baptism of the Lord. But still in the Eastern Church, there is still a connection between this feast and Christmas, because it belongs to the infant, infancy narrative of Christ. What are we celebrating on this feast? This feast is a feast with many elements. It's called the presentation of the Lord in the temple in the West. But in the Eastern Church, it has a different name. It's referred to as the hippopante, in Greek, the meeting, the encounter of the Lord in the temple. This is a very interesting subject. What is happening here? A meeting. Who is meeting whom? The Holy Family takes Christ, Joseph, and the Mother of God. They take the baby Christ to the temple 40 days after his birth. They're simply doing what was normal for Jewish people in the time of Christ, that the first son, the firstborn male, would be brought to the temple and dedicated to God. And for the woman, there were, there were various rites of purification after childbirth. Of course, the mother of God is all pure. She has no need for purification as such. The birth of Christ is without stain. But the very fact that she goes through these ritual processes and the very fact that they take Christ to the temple shows us their great religiosity and dedication to the traditions of the people of Israel, their obedience to the law and commandment of God. And this, I think, is a very important element in this feast, is that we have a great connection between the tradition of the Old Testament leading us into the New Testament. On the one side, 
They are simply doing what every parent would do with their firstborn son, to bring him to the temple, to dedicate him to God. But there is another element here, aside from religious observances and the faithfulness to the laws of Moses, the laws of the people of Israel that guided the people of Israel on their path with God. There's another dimension. And this is the dimension, the supernatural dimension, of what is happening in this feast. They are bringing Christ into the temple. Let us imagine a little bit, or think a little bit, about what does this temple in Jerusalem have for great religious significance? It is the holiest shrine of the Jewish people. It is the place of worship, the place where God resides. When we look in the Old Testament and we see how Solomon has built a temple to honor the one true God, we can hear what artifacts or religious, yes, religious um, devices or, or liturgical devices uh, that were kept in the temple for the cult. Above all, the Ark of the Covenant. These holy objects signified uh, show us the presence of God in the temple, the presence of God which fills the temple, but are also intimately connected to these realities, these significant realities, the Ark of the Covenant and all the treasures that are connected with it. And we know that, that at some point, the temple loses all these objects, something of the glory of God disappears from the temple. The temple is rebuilt after foreign occupation. It still remains to be the holy place, but it is not so much as what it was once. And the significance that Christ, who is the Word incarnate, God incarnate, should come should be brought to the temple. He who is God, who has become man, the Son of the Father, the Logos, the Word of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is carried by his mother into the temple, accompanied by Joseph, who is bringing with him the required sacrifice of two turtle doves, the sacrifice of the poor. And they are coming into the temple, but the child that they are bringing is no usual child. He is the ancient one, the one who always was, who has now appeared in flesh. He is being brought into his temple. When Christ Later, when he is somewhat older, is found in the temple, he asks the question to his mother and to St. Joseph, did you not know I was in my father's house? Here he is being brought into his own. And what happens is the Lord of glory enters into the house, which once contained 
the liturgical implements of glory, the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, we can even go farther and say this, that the Mother of God is the new Ark of the Covenant, because she is the one who is born, Theotokos in Greek, the, the God-bearer. She is born God, Christ, who has appeared in human form, taking on our flesh, becoming truly human. And so, dear friends, this feast has a very mystical character to it. God enters in human flesh the temple, which is built for his adoration. It's a great paradox. He comes into his own without being recognized, except by two people. Two people who have waited a long time to see the fulfillment of the God's saving plans. And I think when we look at this feast, it's a feast of light. It is a feast of light. Because what has happened here is the one who is light comes into the temple and enlightens the minds of Simeon and Hannah. I think this feast can be looked at in many different levels. It is true that in the Catholic Church today, we remember in a very special way all the men and women who have embraced the mystery of monasticism, of life in a religious order, have consecrated their life to God, dedicated their life. We can also see, in a way, a kind of prototype of monk in the figures of Simeon and Hannah, who encounter the mother of God and Christ and St. Joseph. And that is very interesting that we can definitely see here uh, something that allows us to, to appreciate the value of the monastic life or the life of consecrated men and women who have decided to live their life in a, in a state of celibacy, in a state of obedience and poverty before the Lord. But I think it would be wrong to only see that. I think this feast initiates us deeper into the mystery and longing of becoming men and women of prayer. Also, those of us who do not live under the obedience of a monastic law are where the habit those of us who are in the world, even families, are called to, be, to give their life to God. Our life is truly consecrated, dedicated to God through the awesome sacrament of baptism. And so I think in this feast we can see, above all, the mystery of Christian life. A famous Orthodox monk and scholar of the Fathers of the Church, who is alive today, Father Gabriel Bunga, has said that there is no such thing as monastic spirituality. It's a very bold statement. He says there, are only, there is only Christian spirituality, and that whether we are monks or people in the world, we are called to follow the same teacher, we have the same enemies, too, in spiritual life. And so I would like to look at this feast, first of all, as an initiation 
into the mystery of the Incarnation and its connection to Judaism, connection to the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. Secondly, to see it as a feast, an eschatological feast, a feast of expectation, expectation for the coming of God. Naturally, when we read the readings of the feast, particularly the description that we find in the Gospel, in the second chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, we hear of these two people, these two grandiose, great people, Simeon and Hannah, who are waiting. They are expecting the coming of God. They have received confirmation in their own spiritual life in God that He is coming. And that Simeon knew that he would see the Lord, the coming of the day of the Lord, before he passes. So there is the Feast of Expectation. This feast is very much, for me, connected to the mystery of our expectation of the glorious coming of our Lord at the end of history. We know not when that will be, but it will come. It is something we pray every time we pray the Creed. We profess our belief that he will come. And it is true that Christians for centuries have been waiting on the day of the Lord. We don't know when the Lord will come. One thing is certain, that the coming of the Lord become, becomes closer and closer with each passing day, with each passing minute, without, with each passing year. This feast of the presentation of the Lord has something to do with an expectation, a reminder, a gentle reminder that we are called as Simeon and Hannah to expect that he will come. Perhaps we will pass this torch of expectation on when we leave this world to the next generation. Perhaps we will be witnesses of that fearsome day when the Lord will come on the clouds of heaven. We don't know, but the church has called its children through centuries to be witnesses and to be an expectation for the coming of the Lord. And this feast is about the intimacy, the love that God has for each of us. God wants to meet us. He wants to encounter us. And he wants to call us into a temple relationship with him. Because the temple of the Old Testament has passed away. It no longer exists. It was destroyed, in fact. All that is left is the temple mount. But Christ has come to establish or to fulfill the temple in establishing a new temple, which is the church formed of living stones, to which the baptized are the living stones of this temple. And this temple is not on, in the geography of this world, but in the geography of the world to come, the Jerusalem from on high. I believe now we will have a short music break, and then we'll come back to look at these things in a little more detail.
This is Catechesis with Radio Maria. Today's speaker is Father John Reeves, and he's giving us a reflection on the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, which is today, February 2nd. Father John, the microphone is all yours. Thank you so much. So, I w- just to recapitulate what we have said, the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, which is called the Feast of the Presentation in the Temple, because it is the moment where the Holy Family goes to Jerusalem in obedience to the law of Moses to present the firstborn male, Christ, and that that the ritual purifications which were required after giving birth of the mother, that they would be fulfilled, and that Christ would be presented or dedicated in the temple. This is simply the obedience to the law of Moses. But I have said that there's another element to this, and this is beautiful when we look at the feast as it is called in the Eastern Church, and that is the feast of the meeting of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the temple. Because this is the moment where Christ, who is truly God, who has become man, is taken into his temple. He is coming to be dedicated (laughs) in his humanity, but he is God, truly God and truly man. He is the great high priest who will sacrifice himself as the Lamb of God. He will be the Lamb of God slain for the salvation of the world, therefore ending all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It is truly a moment where we see the mystery of the Old Testament being fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And I have also said it's true that in the Church we reflect on this day, particularly with great thanksgiving uh, for all our fathers and mothers who live the monastic life, who live consecrated lives as consecrated monks or nuns in the different monastic traditions of the Church, the contemplative, but also the active, are those who are consecrated as consecrated virgins, or in other forms of consecrated life, where they live a life of celibacy in prayer. We can certainly see a kind of prototypical monk in the person of Simeon and Hannah, who are living in their, much of their life in prayer in the temple. But I would say it would be wrong to stop there. Because in a sense, all of us, whether we are monks or married people, um, celibate people or married people, we who are baptized have all been consecrated to God through baptism. And our baptismal call is deeply alive as members of the new temple established by Christ, the temple built of living stones. And that with Hannah and with Simeon, we are called to have a tremendous sense of prayer and intercession for the world and expectation for the coming of the Lord and glory. And so this feast also invites us to pose the question of where is our encounter, our ipapante in Greek, our meeting with God? The one side we are in this expectation is Hannah and Simeon, but on the other side, there is a sense of fulfillment already. 
that Christ is among us, particularly in the celebration of the liturgy. As a friend of mine has pointed out, that we too are like Simeon when we receive the Eucharist, because we receive Christ present among us truly. I would like to read some poetic text. Poetry is one way of approaching the mystery. I'm not going to read the passage in Luke because I think everyone knows it. The story of how the Holy Family come with the sacrificial doves, the sacrifice of the poor, who come to bring these animals which will be offered in sacrifice while the Lord is being dedicated in the temple, consecrated to God as every firstborn Jewish male at the time of Christ. We all know the passage. We all know the story also about Hannah, or Anna, as, as some translations say, who was 84 years old, an extraordinary age in the time of Christ, um, who is waiting, you know, in, in prayer, waiting in expectation for the coming of the Messiah, as is Simeon. And it's interesting, there's no indication how old Simeon is, but Simeon's hymn gives a clue that he is already advanced in age. And I would like to read a few texts from the services in the Byzantine Rite, the Eastern, Eastern liturgical tradition to which I'm a priest of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And these are some beautiful poetic texts that we have, for example, from Patriarch Germanos of, of Jerusalem, who, of, sorry, of Constantinople, who was a great writer of hymns. I will read some of these texts for you. For your inspiration, Simeon, tell us whom you bear in your arms so that you rejoice so greatly in the temple. To whom do you shout and cry aloud? Now I am set free, for I have seen my Savior. That This is he who was born of a virgin. This is God, the word who came forth from God, who for our sakes has taken flesh and saved man. Let us worship him. And later, we hear, Simeon, receive him whom Moses once beheld in darkness, granting the law on Sinai. Now that he has become a babe, subject to the law, this is he who spoke through the law. This is he whom the prophets spoke, who for our sakes has taken flesh and saved man. Let us worship him. And then another text that we have here, Come, let us go and meet Christ with divine songs. Let us receive him whose salvation Simeon saw. This is he whom David announced. This is he who spoke in the prophets, who for our sakes has taken flesh, and who speaks through the law. Let us worship him. And then we have another text that comes later. These are texts from the Vesper uh, for this feast. And this text I would like to read from the great Saint Andrew of Crete, who was also a great poet of hymns, who says this, He who is born on high by the cherubim and praised in hymns by the seraphim is brought today according to the law and to the holy temple and rest in the arms of the elder as on a throne. 
From Joseph, he receives gifts fitting for God, a pair of doves, a symbol of the spotless church and of the newly chosen people of the Gentiles and the two pigeons, for he is the originator of the covenants, both old and new. Simeon now granted the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning himself, blesses the virgin Theotokos, Mary, the mother of God. He foretells and figures the passion of her son. From him he begs release, crying aloud, Now, Master, let me depart as you promised me, for I have seen the pre-eternal light and the Lord and Savior of the people who bear the name of Christ. So, dear friends, in this feast, as we hear in the hymnography, there is this great sense of mystery that Christ is coming to fulfill the, the promises of the Old Testament. And this is very important. We can sometimes forget the connection of Christ to the Jewish people, the connection of Christ to the Old Testament. Christ himself has said that he has come to fulfill this law, the law of Moses, to fulfill the promises he comes to fulfill. And there are many beautiful elements that we can find in this feast. Perhaps a few thoughts about the most, um, yeah, one of the most important liturgical hymns of the Gospels. We know the hymn of the Mother of God, the Magnificat. We know the hymn of Zacharias. And now we have the hymn of Simeon, the shortest of the gospel canticles. Interestingly enough, it, like the hymn of Zacharias and of the Mother of God, it has found its way into the liturgy of the church, into the daily liturgy of the church. In the Byzantine rite, the Nunc Dimitis, the canticle of Simeon, is sung in every Vespers. In the Roman tradition, it's in the complete. The, the night hour. Now, Master, you may let your servant go in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Truly, dear friends, the hymn of Simeon is a hymn of victory. In the Psalms, it says, sing a new hymn unto the Lord, a new song unto the Lord. Truly, this is the song of victory of Simeon. Here he is standing at the end of his life on the gate, the gateway into eternity. And God has fulfilled the promise that he has given him, that he will not pass this life until he has seen the salvation and so he boldly opens his mouth in praise. And dear friends, there are certain mysteries that can only be expressed through poetry, through hymns. And he says to God, now you may let your servant go in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, the salvation that he was promised to see a salvation that is prepared in the sight of all the peoples, 
Friends, I think this is very important because the mystery here, and which is so beautifully proclaimed by Simeon, is that the mystery of salvation is not only about a single nation, it is about the whole of humanity. Christ has come, Christ the King of Israel has come not only for his own people, but for all the nations, for the Gentiles as well. There is a certain universal signification here of the promises of God, that they are not only for the people of Israel, for the chosen people of God, but God has decided to, to elect all of mankind through the Jewish people to bring salvation. As Christ himself has said, salvation comes from the Jews. And so, dear friends, this is very interesting. I will read another hymn, if I may, from the Vespers to illustrate this element of Simeon's hymn. We have in the Vespers the following verses. The, the mother of God carried in her arms him who is born aloft upon the chariot of the cherubim and praised in song by the seraphim, the giver of the law, who fulfills the commandment of the law, was made flesh of the unwedded virgin. She gave him into the arms of the priest and elder, holding the life. He asked to be released from life, saying, Now, Master, let me depart, and to declare to Adam that I have seen the pre-eternal God and Savior of the world, who was made a babe without undergoing change. This is a beautiful, beautiful sentence. Let where the poet further develops the hymn of Simeon and says, Now let me depart and declare to Adam that I have seen the pre-eternal God. Christ has come to save Adam. Who is Adam? Adam is not only our primordial forefather who fell and was expelled from the Garden of Paradise, and because of his fall, we are also wounded by the fruits or repercussions of Adam's fall. But Adam is also, in a sense, the totality of humanity. Christ has come to save Adam, our father and all of us who make up humanity. And I think this is an important thing to, to come back, this idea of Simeon being dismissed in peace to go to the grave, but to go in expectation of the salvation that Christ, who he has held in his arms, will bring about by his high priestly sacrifice upon the wood of the cross. And we know, this is so beautiful in the, in the ancient tradition of the church, the beautiful icon of the resurrection of Christ, which shows Christ smashing through the gates of hell and drawing Adam and Eve and all of the Old Testament prophets and forefathers into the glory of God. So, dear friends, this feast is deeply a mystery. It connects us to, to Israel, to the Jewish people. It connects us to each other, to all of humanity. It connects us to the mystery of the praying people of God, praying and expecting the coming of the Lord, the hour of the Lord. 
It's also a feast that expresses what worship is, what the mystery of praise is, to boldly to answer God with thanksgiving for his promises that he has fulfilled in the lives of his servants. It is also a feast that speaks very much to the hearts of all those who desire to follow Christ, those who follow the way of the consecrated monastic life, which the fathers of the church only saw as a way to radically live the original baptismal consecration. It's also a reminder to all of us, whether we are in the world or hidden away in the desert or in a monastery, it is a call to all of us to renew our consecration to God. The fact that we, men and women, have been dedicated to God through the waters of baptism and the seal and gift of the Holy Spirit of, through the chrism in our confirmation, our chrismation, that we become men and women of prayer, expecting the coming of God, not only in his glorious coming at the end of history, but it is coming and going in our life from day to day. Where have we seen God? Where have we met Christ today? Where have we beheld with our eyes the saving work of God? And where have we given testimony and praised God as Simeon does? Also, I would like to hear at the end say perhaps a word about Hannah or Anna. She is described with great detail, her age, her life, that she was married, and then as a widow, that she lived a life of constant prayer and fasting in the temple. And one of the beautiful things in the reading that we find is that, and coming forward at that very time, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. When we have met Christ and we have beheld him, then we cannot be silent. Then our life shares, we begin to share the good things of God in our life. So here we have so many elements, the temple, the call of prayer in the temple, the life dedicated to prayer, and also the missionary aspect. Perhaps, if I may be bold and add one final thing, there is an obvious Marian dimension to this feast. Alone the name, as it is called in German, of this feast, Maria Lichtmesse, uh, the candle mass of Mary. Uh, it's a very poor translation, but this feast certainly has a Marian dimension because we see the Mother of God here entering the temple. She who is truly the new Ark of the Covenant, for she who carries God in herself and has brought him to birth. We see also here a foreshadowing of the tragedy of the mission of the Son of God, Simeon's prophecy that a sword will pierce her heart, that we see here also that her vocation will also be to share in the sufferings of her son. This vocation, which she carried in a particularly unique way, under the at the foot of the cross of her son, and indeed in other episodes in the ministry of Christ, we too will also share in the suffering of Christ. A sword will also pierce our hearts when we desire to follow the Lord Jesus, because we will become like him who said, 
we must take also our cross upon us to follow him. Perhaps it is a danger of our age to make Christianity a very cool thing. It's cool to be a disciple of Christ, but there is also a cross. I will quote here Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous Lutheran pastor, who was martyred during World War II, who said, when Christ calls someone to follow him, it is an invitation to come and die with him. Yes, Simeon also must die, but he will go on. We too will also die in following Christ, but we will die to live. And our death is not only in the moment where we will leave this world, but in the daily sacrifices of life where we have to die to our ego, die to many things around us, that we can be open to receive new life. What is this life? Namely, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. These are a few, forgive me, poor thoughts concerning the feast, but I hope that they may be a blessing. listening to Catechesis with Radio Maria and Father John Reeves. This is your opportunity now, dear listeners, to have that conversation now. Do you have any reflections on this presentation of the Lord Jesus today? Do you have any reflections or thoughts on what Father John shared about Simeon, Hannah, about the returning of the Lord Jesus, about our expectations? Do call and let's have that conversation. The number is 01223-375-564. Again, the number is 01223-375-564. And now... Let's have another song so that you have that time to call.
This is Catechesis, and this is Radio Maria. Father John Reeves, you've shared with us about the presentation of the Lord. And I was wondering, with Simeon knowing, ah, now I've seen, I've, you've let me, Lord, live to this point, and I have seen the Savior. Let me go in peace according to thy word. And that has such, you, you shared that there was so much confidence <laughs> Simeon had. It was, has there been a moment like that for you where you have been absolutely confident that something's been completed and you're ready to move on or go on to the next step? Well, I would say, you know, this is, this is a very interesting question. I, I would say that in my own life, I have had moments where I feel that my that certain steps were accomplished, right? I would say two things for me would certainly be the day of my marriage, the day I, I, I married, and I would say also on the day of my ordination as a deacon and then as a priest. But I would say here what Simeon experiences is, some, is I think, a very different category because he has, he has received a, a, a mystical theophany, an encounter with God. There's also something very interesting in the, in the canticle, right, uh, which he, he speaks about. He references, uh, I have my Bible here, uh, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So light is an interesting word. You know, we, we sometimes talk about a light going off in our head, right, <laughs> our heart, a moment of illumination. But I think we all have had something like that, where we've had a moment where we, where we have clarity, right? But I would say there is a whole different dimension here. But indeed, we can, I think, liken some things in our own lives to it. But there is something very triumphant here, yeah? victorious in this statement. I think it's quite a bold statement, uh, what he says here. It is such a bold statement. And that goes along with how we celebrate the feast of the presentation of the Lord, doesn't it? Is this light, this light. And I know when we celebrated it this week, we had candles. It's called Candle Mass, like you shared to us. Such an important part. Oh, yes. And it's also in in many... No, I don't think it's in all of the Eastern traditions, but there's a tradition in our churches that we that we bless candles as well on this feast. And I think that in one sense, all of the feasts that we celebrate are filled with divine light. But this feast has something quite extraordinary in it. And the candle, the the burning flame of, of the oil lamps and candles are always a kind of metaphor for one on one side the light of God glowing in our hearts and illuminating our hearts and minds. And it's also, I'm always amazed that, for example, when you have, for example, when tragic things happened, there's been a war or a shooting or something terrible like this, that people often gather together and light candles. And I'm not necessarily speaking here of lighting candles as a religious act, but simply an act of commemorating something or a tragic situation. And a candle has, for many people, uh, 
It is a sign of hope because a candle lights in the darkness. Or we can look at other feasts of the church, for example, Easter, where there is the lighting of the Paschal candle. Or, and there's also a similar, it's, though it's a bit different, huh? the candle that illuminates the darkness in the Eastern churches also at Easter. But the light has something to say to us about God shining forth. It's interesting that we celebrate this feast in the winter. The 2nd of February is winter. There's often snow. Our days are still short. The light gives comfort and hope, and it is one of the most powerful signs that we have in the, in the life of the Church. I love that's one of my favorites is definitely a candle and definitely a light. Listeners, you've got an opportunity to call in and ask or reflect on how maybe you celebrated the feast of the presentation of the Lord. Is there is there something about Simeon's dedication, Hannah's dedication that you connect to? Call in and let's share with Father John Reeves. The number is zero one two two three. Three seven five five six four.
for joining us for Catechesis. Father John Reeves, could you give us any final points, final uh, explanations and a prayer, please? Yes. I think this feast is a tremendous experience, huh? an invitation for us as church to go deeper into the mystery of God. And mystery on the one side of thanksgiving for his coming to us. God, who was born in this world, who took upon himself our humanity. And on the other side, it is a feast that inspires us to more, to ask God for the grace of more expectation and the ability also through his Holy Spirit, to recognize him. I will also say this, that we will recognize him when our heart is ready to receive him. May he also recognize us, recognize in us hearts that is open for him. There's a beautiful saying of St. John Chrysostom, one of the great fathers of the church who said, if we cannot recognize Christ in the beggar, how shall we recognize him in the Eucharistic chalice? And the heart that will recognize Christ will see Christ also in their brothers and sisters. And such a heart Christ will recognize on the day of his visitation. So let us be bold and ask God for such a heart that loves God and that is willing to seek him, to seek him and to see him. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us hearts that are humble and meek, hearts that are faithful and filled with the expectation to meet you wherever you will appear in our life and to see you on the glorious day of your coming when you will come on the clouds of glory. We ask this through the intercession of the holy elder Simeon who you found worthy to carry you on his arms and through the intercession 
of the Holy Prophet, Hannah, who recognized you. And the prayers of the righteous Joseph and the Most Holy Mother of God. Amen. Amen. God bless, Father John. Have a great day, and thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.